I'm about to share this memory, and I feel like in sharing this memory, I'm also about to age myself. So I need you to bear with me. I'm in good company, because I know what I'm about to share. You guys are going to know exactly what I'm talking about. But if you don't, just pretend that you know so that my jokes don't fall flat, okay? So way back when I was in middle school, we used to have this little note-passing game. It was really popular, um, and it was called MASH. Anybody know MASH? Yes, you do. Okay, this is awesome. All right. If you don't know this incredibly accurate, life-predicting game, I'm about to blow your mind. Okay, so what would happen is you would get, you know, a piece of paper. By the way, I'm a teacher, so doing this as a student, like, this is not okay. But anyway, I'm just going to go ahead and say that this is what we did. So you would have this list of categories. Yeah, I put pictures, visuals up there for you. And you would have categories like spouse or job and car, and you would put down four or five options. And then a friend would put a lesser than option underneath. Um, so choose your friends wisely in middle school, okay? And then you would get this number. And as you would go through, you would cross off, you know, okay, so I had four. So I would go one, two, three, four, cross off. One, two, three, four, cross off. And then the important piece to all of this was the title of the game. Because the title of the game was an acronym that stood for mansion, apartment, shack, and home. You guys are laughing. I haven't even got to the good part yet. <laughs> now, obviously... I didn't end up as a surgeon living in California with six kids, married to Justin Timberlake. Don't judge me. Dude, that was the dream. No, I'm, I'm living the dream right now. Where's my husband? Is he red right now? Yeah, there we go. That's the dream. Now, the vision behind this game, as hilarious as that might be, is that you either enter into a state of uh, prosperity or you end up in poverty. And as a young girl, I remember you know, feeling incredibly nervous and anxious um, because I didn't want to land on the S. I didn't want to land on the shack. And despite it being such a silly game, the fear about living in a shack and all that that entails, well, that was real. Because when we hear a word like shack, the fear encompasses one very real truth. If I was in a place in my life where I had to live in a shack, what did I do wrong? What's the matter with me? What have I done or not done to put myself in that situation? Why am I not living prosperously in a mansion with a brand new car and a six-figure salary? Now, the memory of this game and this whole series of No Filter had me thinking about some really difficult questions. Is our vision of prosperity becoming so tied to this ideal picture that we want others to see that we forget what really matters? Is our fear of becoming impoverished so great that it prevents us from helping those who are? Do we hold these mutually exclusive ideas in the same regard? Fear of not attaining one and fear of becoming the other? You know, from a very young age, we're taught to aspire to live a life that's filled with success and wealth and status. And when we think of this concept of prosperity, it's tied so intimately to this idea of fulfillment. 
If I'm prosperous, I am fulfilled. If I'm prosperous, then I'm happy. If I'm prosperous, I made it. But what happens if those things aren't so clearly defined? Well, then we have failed. So even as a young girl playing this ridiculous game, I was banking my future to be filled with dreams of mansions and large homes. I didn't dare dream of the worst. From a young age, I've learned that if I want to be a success, you know, the person with the perfect mansion, the car, the job, the status, I better lay that filter of prosperity on hard. I better get the high school education with honors. Graduate from the best private school magna cum laude. Get into all the right networks. Find a job that pays a six-figure salary. And on and on the list continues. But in this process of attaining this filter of prosperity, what happens when I fail? What happens if in this pursuit of being prosperous, I become more reliant on myself and less reliant on God? During my prep this week, Pastor Andrew sent over this article, and he said, I think this will actually really help you. And it's titled, Workism is Making Americans Miserable. And the author, Derek Thompson, had this to say about Americans today. We've created this idea that the meaning of life should be found in work, but our desks were never meant to be our altars. <sighs> yeah, right? <laughs> And that, that kind of wrecked me, because in attempting to fulfill this idol of prosperity, the vision that we will be fulfilled and happy when others see that we are successful, we've become this culture that is setting up the future generations for what he describes as anxiety, mass disappointment, and inevitable burnout. You see, as a society, we've identified this very specific perspective of what we think success and prosperity looks like, and when we see others living a life that doesn't match with that vision of what Americans believe is prosperous, well, we tend to judge. Or we tend to overlook how we can help. Ultimately, with the amount of anxiety that we do see increasing, I think what we have is a culture that has been led and lost in misguided expectations. So what I want to look at is, well, what is God saying about prosperity? How does he define it? Because when we place this filter of prosperity over our lives, we become more reliant on seeking the status of prosperity than we do seeking relationship with him. The truth is, is that we can put as many filters on that we can think of but God doesn't want to see us living our lives drowning in these fleeting ideals. He chose to die on a cross for us. And because of that, his plan for our life is good. And no, it doesn't entail living this life under these filters, leading to feeling burnt out, leading to feel depressed, leading to feel anxiety. So what we're going to talk about is actually a story in John 9, and I think that it really helps to illustrate the vision that God has for his children when it comes to this idea of prosperity and the plans that he has for us. We're going to explore what happens when we live outside of this filter of prosperity and walk fully in the vision that God has for us as his children. Um, so I just want to take a minute, I just want to pray and invite the Holy Spirit in, if you'll join me. 
Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you want to be in relationship with us. Thank you that you see the original. You see us without the filters. And you love us. God, I ask right now that you meet each person here today in the way that he or she needs. And I ask, God, with your grace and with your love, that you, uh, you just meet us right where we're at, right where we are at, right exactly what we need. I thank you, God, for your presence, and I thank you for what you're about to do today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to take a look at the passage. It's a pretty long passage, so what I did was I put the slides up there. Um, it is from John 9, and I actually cut a little bit out of the middle, but I'll give you some context for it. So please feel free to read along on the slides, your Bible app, or your Bibles. All right, here we go. So Jesus heals a man born blind. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Okay, we're going to skip down a little to verse 24. A second time, the Pharisees summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind but now I see. Then they asked him, well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple? We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what, are we blind too? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, 
your guilt remains. Okay, so there's a lot to unwrap here. Um, So first I want to start by looking at the man's circumstances. He is blind. And as a blind man, his options are severely limited. It's not like he can just go ahead and go to work. And so um, to sustain his living, he's often seen begging by others. And so one of the first questions that the disciples ask him is, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Don't we ask these kinds of questions today, be it verbally or consciously? How did you get to be poor? What choices did you make to get to that situation? You must have done this to yourself. Can't you just get a job? And we tend to place unfortunate circumstances or situations in higher regard um, than dealing with the root issue or in helping another person. Jesus follows up with, neither this man nor his parents sinned. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. I'm going to say that one more time. This happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus can use our circumstances for his good. He does not distinguish between the good and the bad with what he chooses to use. For many of us, it's actually in those difficult circumstances, those difficult situations, where we see his face more clearly. It's actually in those difficult situations where we see the works of God displayed. And we might not actually even see it fully in the moment or understand it or even have answers that we're completely satisfied with, but we can trust that his plans are good. They are plans to prosper us. This man's blindness, so what made his circumstances seemingly bleak, it's not a result of sin. Okay, Jesus makes that clear. They are so that the works of God might be displayed in him. I think this is really a hard thing for us to conceptualize um, because we don't like to think that our suffering is something that God can use or something that he allows. Um, But what the enemy meant for evil, God is going to use for his purposes and it is going to be good. And like I said, we might not fully understand what he's doing in that suffering, in that moment, but we can trust that his plans are far better than anything that we could have ever imagined. Uh, Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Now, if you look at the lines that follow in John 9, he says, As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Okay, so maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, Danielle, you know, my circumstances are actually not that bad. You know, things are fine. Things are good. But I can guarantee you that there are people, maybe even sitting next to you, people you know, people at your job, people at your school, people that you encounter on a daily basis who are suffering, or who are going through a difficult season. This is a call for all of us. This man was a beggar, yes, but his circumstances are not a result of something that he did. 
Another angle to this scene is the Pharisees. Look at their response to him. In their judging interpretation of what he must have done, they failed to see something extremely important. They had an opportunity to help. We are called as his disciples to help the poor and the needy. Jesus knew that this was a major part of his calling here on earth. And so he's guiding us through this practice, this important practice, with this man's situation. Look at the two things that we can glean from his response. Number one, our negative circumstances are not always a result of sin. We live in a fallen world. There is pain that exists. But Jesus is a redemptive God who restores. He is the light of the world. And his light brings life. His light brings salvation. His life is far more important than what we cannot change here on earth. The second piece is that Jesus modeled how we are to act through his time on earth. Look, if he helped this man without regard, you know, for his own status, well, then we too need to follow in his footsteps, regardless of what that looks like to the world. Now, the Pharisees, oh boy, they are enraged by what Jesus had done in healing this man. And in those verses that I cut out, basically what they're doing is they're um, interrogating um, this blind man's parents. And so they are frustrated. They cannot believe that a sinner was capable of this miracle and on the Sabbath. Now, to put this into a little bit of context, the Pharisees are angry because what Jesus did, that was a breach in their following of the law. And so they go as far as excommunicating the blind man because of his response to them. Jesus is able to meet with the man. He hears what happens. He's able to meet with the man. He explains more about his identity and the purpose of his ministry. Jesus also reminds the Pharisees that those who ought to know better spiritually will be held accountable as a result. He says this, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Now, the Pharisees, they were really concerned with performance and status. Um, if the Pharisees were Instagram influencers, they'd have lots of followers, okay? And they'd have lots of pictures attesting to their status. Um, you all know who I'm talking about, right? Those people on Instagram. Um, but here's the thing. They're enraged because this beggar, he's receiving spiritual blessing. And wait a second. We're the ones entitled to this. We're owed this. Look at all of the things that we're doing. Look at how great we are. What's this guy doing? Why is he the one getting this blessing? Jesus flips the script all together here. And as he summarizes his entire ministry um, to this man on earth, someone who, by the way, had no status in society, Jesus is actually able to expose the Pharisees' falsehoods. Their idol, their, um, he exposes their idols, their obsession with status, and he brings the redeemed outlook. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see. 
and those who see will become blind. Now, yes, the man's physical sight was restored, but even more so than that, his spiritual blindness was uncovered. How much more abundance does this man now have because of that encounter with Jesus? You can say, well, yeah, maybe he did that because, you know, Jesus did something for him. Well, yeah, his physical sight was changed. It's, it's brought back, but the man still chose to follow him without question. Now, Jesus may not solve all of our issues. He might not fix our physical ailments or rectify our difficult situations, but he is going to reveal himself to us. And so the question we have to ask is, what is blinding us from seeing his goodness? What idols do we hold up? What would we rather pay mind to than see the fulfillment that comes with understanding who we are as his sons and daughters? What are we unwilling to release in an effort to be successful and prosperous? And what do we fail to surrender in hopes of maintaining this facade of prosperity? What filters do we have in place? There's that word again, filter, um, that prevents us from seeing the plans that he has to prosper us. Like I said, Jesus can use our circumstances to reveal himself. Are we open and willing, like the blind man, to receive what he has for us? Or do we give into the filter, the idol of prosperity, like the Pharisees, that blind us? The irony of this is not lost on me. A blind man has his sight restored, not just in the immediate and in the physical sense, but for all of eternity while those who have sight are blinded because of their own undertaking. Um, I recently had an opportunity to share a TED talk with uh, some of my high school students um, about a woman who had spent a year of her life homeless. She starts off her speech by talking about how a, she had this recent tragedy, like we all do, um, and how this tragedy caused her to quit her job and take her life on the road. Um, but she failed to recognize some critical things about living as an American. She says this, one, that society equates living in a permanent structure, even a shack, with having value as a person. Two, I failed to realize how quickly the negative perceptions of other people can impact our reality if we let it. Three, I failed to realize that homelessness is an attitude, not a lifestyle. And she continues by sharing how her situation rapidly declined. And she could no longer get out of that situation that she at first thought was just going to be temporary. She felt out of control. Nothing else had changed, not her IQ, not her talents, not her values, not her integrity. But her situation with her wealth and her status had changed, and so the trajectory of her situation in that moment altered the course of her life. She eventually found her voice again, and she began writing, and she was ultimately able to um, come out of her circumstances, rise up out of her circumstances of poverty, but she ends her piece with this. Thousands of people work full and part-time jobs, 
and live in their cars. But society continues to stigmatize and criminalize living in your vehicles or on the streets. So the homeless, the working homeless, primarily remain invisible. But if you ever meet one, engage them. Encourage them. Offer them hope. The human spirit can overcome anything if it has hope. I am here to tell you that based on my experience, people are not where they live, where they sleep, or what their life situation is at any given time. Three years ago, I was living in a van in a Walmart parking lot, and today, I'm speaking at TED. Hope always, always finds a way. If you get a chance to listen to this, um, it was really powerful, it was really important, I think, for us as a society to, to be mindful of. But I remember watching it and sort of fighting back tears. So here was this successful woman who had undergone a tragedy, and she had lost her identity in the process. She makes it very clear, nothing internally had changed, not who she was, not what she valued, but her circumstances, well, that deemed her an outsider. That deemed her dirty. That deemed her unworthy. And so this speaker's message, it penetrated my heart, not purely out of sadness for her situation, but for conviction for what I have felt about people who are less fortunate. Do I offer help to those in need enough? Do I have these preconceived notions about those who are impoverished? I'm called to be the hands and feet of Jesus, right? But do I convey that in my daily life? Or do I give into this idol of prosperity? And do I worry about my own success, about my own wealth, about my own status? Do I give in to this idol um, of ease, of security? What is it for you? Are you self-conscious? Does the idea of helping someone else, does that taint your idea of success? You know, just as the speaker said, homelessness is an attitude, well, is this idol of prosperity, is this one that I've tacked onto my own? Have I become like the Pharisees in this chapter, questioning a man's circumstances because I'm jealous of his success and of the blessings that he received? Do I really trust in the hope that Jesus gives, the truth that he will prosper me, and out of all of what I said, I think this part is the hardest. You know, because by definition, prosperity is tied to wealth and status. But when Jesus defines the meeting, it's far more than just wealth and status. Don't get me wrong, Jesus wants us to have blessings here on this earth. He does. But when he talks about his plans to prosper us, it's not only for the right now. It's for eternity. This is not a message I feel comfortable preaching. Trust me, I tried to pawn this off hard, like a bunch of times. Um, Tim knows. <laughs> he was like, no, 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 go ahead. Um, but in all seriousness, the reason why 
is because this addresses some really difficult questions and really difficult situations. How do you go about expanding on this idea that God is good in all circumstances with a plan that is good, a plan to prosper us to someone who just lost her job, someone who cannot feed his children, someone who is living out of her car? How do you explore the magnitude of a person's pain without sounding trite or cliche? God is good is a phrase that we say often, but how do we prove that to people suffering? How do we prove that to those who cannot see outside of their circumstances? How do we prove that to those who are so far gone in their hurt and in their pain that it feels and looks impossible? How do we acknowledge that God is good when the world around us is mocking and judgmental and seemingly flawless? How do we reconcile this truth that God is good when right now, for many of us, it looks and feels like the exact opposite? I'm here to contend today that no matter how the world interprets your status or lack thereof, that God sees you and he hears you and he loves you. I'm here to plead with you on behalf of those suffering through difficult situations that they don't need us to fuel this lie about status, this lie about prosperity. Our job in these instances is not to pat them on the back with a, you know, truism or some trite statement. Our job is to point them to the cross. Our job is to support them financially or through prayer. Our job is not to shame them. Our job is not to give them some cliche statements and say, okay, well, our job is done, and, you know, they'll figure it out. No, our job is to support them through our generosity, through our kindness, and through our love, because that is what we are called to do. We cannot ignore the emotional baggage that is tied to our financial circumstances, wealth, and status. What we can do instead is tap into the truth about what God says about us and what he says about our standing in him. He has a plan not to harm us, but to prosper us. And no, this isn't a message providing an answering to suffering. In many cases, the calling on our lives will consist of inevitable suffering. This man, although he had his sight restored, he was excommunicated. And he will probably have long-standing consequences with his community and with his parents. But what we are called to do, even still, is to listen to God, do the work of God, and trust in him. If we consider our value as part of our wealth attainment, or if we consider this idea of poverty as a curse, we are pursuing idols more than we are pursuing Jesus. This whole idea of no filter came out of an understanding that we lay filters on to paint this pretty picture of what we want others to see. In a Pinterest pinning, Instagram filtering, Facebook posting world, we've become obsessed with portraying our life in a way that reveals the success we have. You know, we hear stories of mommy wars and corporate ladder climbing battles and more teenagers diagnosed with anxiety and depression than ever before because we are all trying to find our place in this world. 
But as we lay filter on top of filter on top of filter, we live in this false self, this facade of a life that we think others want to see. But I think if we're honest, we would recognize how deeply dissatisfied we become with these idols that are tied to success, that are tied to status. I will be totally honest with you and say that I am tired of keeping up with the facade. I'm tired of pursuing this empty vision of success that leads me to feeling burnt out, yearning for things that I don't need, and trying to impress people who are probably just as self-conscious as I am. God sees through the filters. And guess what? He's in love with the original. We have to stop creating an image instead of being the image. We have to pursue him and respond to his love. That is our only responsibility. This is the vision of a fulfilled life that Jesus is giving us. So while I don't want to discredit the reality uh, that poverty and wealth attainment are things that we have to contend with daily, and there is this extreme emotion connected with it, we have to understand that our pursuit of him has to be the priority, regardless of our circumstances. God can use our pain for his kingdom purposes. Our fulfillment is never going to come out of having thousands of followers on social media. Our fulfillment will never come out of fame. It'll never come out of fortune. Our fulfillment comes from knowing Jesus and from walking in relationship with him. Jesus uses a blind man with no status to reveal the truth about himself and the promise of what is to come. Wherever we are in our spiritual walk, maybe you don't know him, maybe you've known him for a really long time, but wherever we are, with regardless of our status, Jesus can use you right now. He could use you for his kingdom. He could use you for his glory. And man, that is a good feeling. That is a good feeling that regardless of the money in my bank account, what I look like to this world, that he sees me. And he sees me just as he wants to see me, without the filters. I'll end with this story. Uh, years ago, I was in a doctor's office filling out a questionnaire and it was right after my son was born. And it was just one of those, you know, insurance kind of forms. And it had a bunch of different questions. And one of the first questions was, what is your profession? And because I wasn't currently teaching at the time, because I was on leave, I didn't know what to write down. Now, I could have wrote down teacher, because that's my career. That's what I am. But I felt like I would have been lying, because I wasn't teaching in that moment. I didn't want to just put down caretaker. I didn't know if I should put down mom. And it was just this question on a simple questionnaire, but all of a sudden, it caused me to question my life choices, and it caused me to question my value, and it caused me to question my worth. But here's the truth. I was more concerned with the people who were about to read my answer than I was with what was really happening which was that God had called me in that season to stay at home. God had called me because he knew that that's where I needed to be. He had a plan. 
And it was a good one. But it was this major moment, this mini crisis of God is, are you sure? Are you sure this is what I'm supposed to be doing? And so I allowed my fear of rejection and my obsession with status to make me feel insignificant, insignificant, to make me feel unworthy. What I had failed to see was that I had this enormous and beautiful gift of tending to my children in a way that I knew I was called to in that season. I had to trust that the plan that he had for my life for that season was good. And looking back, it was one of the hardest decisions with many different consequences, but it was one of the best choices that we could have made for our family. Jesus revealed himself to the blind man because he had a plan to prosper that man's life. He showed up in a way that the man needed the most. And because the blind man was willing and because he trusted, the blind man entered a relationship of eternity with his Savior. Jesus died so that we could be part of his lineage. Jesus died so that we can take part in his family. We can take part in his blessings. We have the promise of eternity with him. Our now, right now, might feel impossible. It might feel weighty, it might feel overwhelming, but the God of this universe has called you into relationship so that you can see past the circumstances of right now and walk into the future, a future of eternity with our Lord and Savior. Encounter his goodness. Encounter the fullness of what it means to be a follower of Christ, even in this moment. Remove the filter, the idol of, of poverty, the idol of prosperity, and ask him, Lord, what are you doing in this moment? The blind man in this story decided to trust Jesus. He didn't put any stipulations on him. He didn't ask him for further proof. He didn't ask for more blessings or financial freedom. He trusted that the man who was able to perform a miracle for the seemingly impossible was who he said he was and would be his Lord and Savior. So where do you stand today? Who do you identify with in this story? Are you the blind man right now and just desperate? Are you the disciples of Jesus learning that you are called to reach out to those in need? Are you the Pharisee, stuck in a cycle of performance and personal success, scared of uncovering what's really under the surface? I want you to take a minute and think about these questions and seriously ask the Lord to reveal where your heart is in this. Ask Jesus to reveal himself to you right where you are with whatever circumstances you are walking through. Ask him to reveal the idols in your life that are preventing you from seeing him and his plans to prosper you. Think about what it would look like if we could take the risk of the blind man and say, Lord, I'm not going to look at my circumstances. I'm not going to place demands on you. I'm not going to put my plan on you, but what I'm going to say is this, Lord, I trust you. I will follow you despite my plan, despite my circumstances, despite what the world says should be. I will follow you wholeheartedly, no matter what the cost. I said before that this was a hard message to preach, um, and I still stand by that because I know that we are all walking in different 
seasons with different issues, but I do also wholeheartedly believe that there is hope. And so just like that woman who was homeless, who needed someone to see her, I'm telling you today that God sees you, and he hears you, and he loves you. Um, we are going to, as a church, take part in communion, but we are also going to invite members of the prayer team up. And I want you to, as you consider these questions, as you think about where you are today, consider how can I feel what it is that he has for me? How can I remove the filter of prosperity and walk in the original version of myself that I know God loves?